Today I'm catching up with George Hartwell, who served as mayor of Grand Rapids, Michigan from 2004 until 2016. During that time, he was asked to join Obama's Climate Task Force, and his leadership was recognized with the Climate Protection Award for large cities. George, thanks for joining us. I first heard you speak in 2004. I remember your speech in particular focusing on the power of cities being large enough to matter and small enough that a group of concerned citizens could actually move the needle. Are you as optimistic now about the role of cities as you were then? You're being very kind. As I recall, that speech started by my saying, mayors will save the world. (laughs) This is true. Mayors will save the world. And, you know, to tell you the truth, Christian, I still believe that's the case. (laughs) What can be accomplished at the local level, especially without the clutter of partisan politics, is important and significant, especially with respect to climate change. I've had the opportunity to attend, as a representative of U.S. mayors, two of the United Nations climate conferences, the one in Warsaw and the one in Paris. I've seen the sausage being made at that level. In 2015, I was privileged to be one of 38 mayors from the U.S., credentialed by the United Nations, to represent U.S. mayors at the Paris Climate Accords. On December the 5th, in the very first week of the conference, Mayor Anne Hidalgo of Paris, and at that point, former Mayor Michael Bloomberg of New York, gathered the mayors of the world, 600 of us who were there at that conference at City Hall. And we had a day together that I think was perhaps one of the most impactful of my 12 years as mayor and perhaps one of the more impactful in my life, where we were working across international boundaries to develop our own strategy, not only for influencing and affecting the final outcomes of the Paris Agreement, but also looking ahead to how we were going to be implementing those accords in our own communities. I can say this with certainty, 600 mayors went away from City Hall in Paris, absolutely convinced that we were the frontline guards to save the planet from climate change, that international agreements are important. Don't get me wrong. National commitments are important. But the work, the hard work, the work that makes a difference is done at the city level. And so here's 600 mayors with a passion and a commitment and some tools to be able to implement the Paris Accords. Now, I came back to Michigan. My term was over at the end of that month after 12 years as mayor. But I watched a climate denier elected president of the United States. And I watched him take us out of the Paris Agreement. That's discouraging, but the work has continued. Mayor after mayor after mayor in this country, hundreds of them, perhaps over a thousand now, have signed on to a subsequent agreement during the Trump era that said, in effect, Mr. President, you may not care, but we do. And we're gonna be working on it in our communities, at the local level, at the ground, and they have. So my successor in Grand Rapids has done some incredible work around renewable energy and has taken the city from the roughly 20-25% renewable energy as a percentage of its total portfolio that it had when I left office to something closer to 40% now of the city's electrical power coming from renewable energy. 
It's happening and it's happening at the local level. There was a book, I bought it for the title so that I could put it on my shelf and people could see the spine. But then I read it and it was absolutely right on. The title of the book is If Mayors Rule the World. And what he said is that at the level of national governments and state or provincial governments, politics plays such an immobilizing role that things either don't get done or they get watered down to such an effect that they are often inconsequential. But the city, the river floods, at the city, the heat island effect begins to take people's lives. At the city, hurricanes blow in and water levels rise. And so mayors are compelled, (laughs) compelled to do that work. So I still believe today, and I remain optimistic, that the work that's being done in cities all over the world is going to make a huge impact on climate change for generations to come. First of all, I love that. Clearly, you haven't slowed down one bit. On- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've slowed down, but my passions are still there. <laughs> I really appreciated that conference. I mean, my sister and I were there because Patty Burkholz had invited us. I was 13 at the time. I think Catherine was 15 or 16. And to be around such a group of real visionaries for the Great Lakes, whether it's Patty Burkholz, whether it's Peter Weggy, whether it's yourself, just a really wonderful group of leaders. And I feel like the impact of their leadership remains. But I'm aware that both Peter Weggy and Patty Burkholz have since passed away and you've retired. For the generation that will be stepping into these shoes, I'd love for you to speak a little bit about being a very socially conscious, environmentally conscious leader focused on working to support marginalized communities. We are in a part of the state that has both wealth that in theory could help with that, but also a relatively conservative reputation. We've got the DeVos family and Betsy DeVos, her brother Eric Prince with Blackwater, militias. Although probably more now than there were previously when you were there. But how did you navigate this regional political community? It's funny to think about it. My father chaired the Kent County Democratic Party in the 1950s when, as he used to say, there were three of us. (laughs) And for him to see Kent County today, and especially to see the city of Grand Rapids today, Jerry Ford's hometown, he wouldn't recognize it, I believe. The city of Grand Rapids has become decidedly democratic. Demographic changes primarily resulting in those political changes. I believe the city has voted in the last nine or 10 presidential elections for the Democratic candidate. In Kent County, interestingly, which is still in Republican territory and still relatively conservative, Joe Biden won the county. Barack Obama won the county. So I think that the outstate perception is that Kent County is a decidedly conservative Republican bastion. And that isn't certainly as true today as it once was. And the fact that a liberal such as I could be elected three times as mayor in Grand Rapids certainly speaks to the changes that have taken place in that community. That said, it's still important to work across the aisle. And because I served in a nonpartisan office, I felt it gave me at least some opportunity to work with Republicans as well as Democrats. I didn't go to Lansing or Washington with a big, 
capital D on my forehead. I was simply the nonpartisan mayor of Grand Rapids, trying to do good things for my community. When it came to working with some of our philanthropists who deserve enormous credit for the renaissance of the city of Grand Rapids, even though most of them lived outside of the city, they saw the importance of investing in the core city and they found that they could work with a mayor even though they didn't always agree with his political ideology. I think Grand Rapids and Kent County are worth studying in terms of their models of working across business and government and philanthropy, sort of that triangle by trusting one another and working together and building up and respecting each of those sectors. I think we got things done that other communities that, you know, want to fight between business and, and government, you know, the mayor versus the chamber of commerce or the philanthropists versus the business people. We don't have a lot of that in Grand Rapids and in Kent County. One of the things that I find interesting is if you look at the congressional opposition to Trump, two of the 10 who voted for his impeachment, Peter Meyer and Fred Upton, are from West Michigan. Yeah. Justin Amash was an outspoken critic of Trump. And while I certainly don't agree with many of the policies those three have supported, I do think it's interesting that those are some of the most outspoken critics of the ideology of Trump, all coming out of a very traditionally conservative or thought of as conservative area. I give them each, Upton and Meyer, a lot of credit for being bold enough, brave enough to take the stands that they did. And Justin Amash, too, with his pushback on Trump. But in part, it's a very strategic political recognition that the districts that they serve are marginal Republican districts and that there's a moderate Republican voice here in addition to the strident right-wing voice that they need to speak to and that they can speak to moderate Democrats as, as well. So I think there was some strategy in what they did, but also a great deal of courage. Yeah. You had a personal experience recently that reflects the hyper-partisan divide we're seeing around the country. Can you speak to that? As a way to transition from a full and active professional life to the life of a retiree. I serve on a number of boards, the International Joint Commission's Water Quality Board. I serve on the Michigan Board of the Environmental Law and Policy Center out of Chicago. Governor Whitmer has appointed me to, <laughs> has twice appointed me to serve on boards. A little over a year ago, I was appointed to chair the Michigan Natural Resources Commission. And as soon as that word got out, the National Rifle Association weighed in with all of their members in Michigan with an action alert saying, you know, this would be the worst appointment in the history of appointments. Hartwell is anti-gun, he's anti-hunting. Uh, what was the governor thinking? My appointment was defeated on a party line vote in the Senate with only a single Republican, my own senator here in Nuevo County, voting with me. Looking back on that nomination that was voted down, how do you feel about that? It's not necessarily common that someone in that position would not be approved. Absolutely. You're right about that. That was very unusual. And what made it even more difficult for me is that the governor had two appointments. She appointed 
a very bright and capable young biologist with a background in deer herd management, an ideal candidate for that job. And she was appointed just before I was, and they used her appointment to, to try to knock me out. So they went to the governor the day before on the 59th day and said, if you'll withdraw Hartwell, we will let, um, I, sorry, I'm drawing a blank on her name, we'll let her go through. And the governor said, the hell I will. And so the very next day they took her to a vote on the Senate floor and voted her down as well. So I felt responsible for that. I think my feelings were of, of disappointment, Christian. I thought I could be a very good chair for that Natural Resources Committee. I didn't need it for my resume. You know, I'm not at a stage of life where I'm building resume anymore. But uh, it was just disappointing. Did you experience that as well as mayor? How had your experiences in politics leading up to that touched on this increasing tension across the aisle? I think I certainly saw that both in race relations in the community as an area of passion for me, an area that I'd worked on. And even in 2014, 2015, I was watching things deteriorate in the city. The issue around guns was that I objected to guns in public meetings. I thought there was no place for a firearm in a public meeting. I argued that it was a suppression of the First Amendment rights of others when someone exercised their Second Amendment rights and carried a firearm into a public meeting. And so it was on those grounds that the NRA began challenging me even while I was still in office. I would have gun rights folks lined up at the lectern at every meeting to tell me how foolhardy I was. That's, that's a kind word. <laughs> so you could, you could sort of feel that tension. I mean, I was fortunate to serve in a nonpartisan office, and I felt like that gave me some elbow room to work with both Republican and Democratic legislators in Lansing and in Washington. But when you look at the policies that I implemented over the years and the speeches that I made over the years, I think it's very clear that I'm quite liberal and it could be assumed that I was a Democrat, correctly assumed that I'm a Democrat. And so the right really pushed back and we saw that regularly throughout my term in office. But I think in increasing measure, the closer I got to the end. Yeah. Well, it, it's very interesting that you had spoken out so strongly against guns in public meetings, given how much more real that has become over the course of the last few years. Isn't it? Guns in the Capitol. Was that a theoretical issue for you at that point? Was it you didn't think that they should be there, but you weren't necessarily expecting that guns would be brought to public meetings? Or did you already see intimidation tactics? Well, there was a trigger for that, pardon that pun. The city early in my tenure had passed an ordinance prohibiting guns in public buildings. Other cities in Michigan did the same thing. The state legislature ran to the rescue to protect gun rights in Michigan, and they preempted any local ordinance that was more restrictive than state statute with respect to firearms. Other cities rescinded their ordinance. Grand Rapids didn't. We said, no, it's important. We know we can't enforce it, but it's going to stay in the books because the day is going to come when reason will triumph, and it will be obvious that there's no place for guns in public meetings. 
And so I became sort of the cause celeb for the gun toters. <laughs> and for, I think it was the last three or four years that I was in office, three years anyway, that I was in office, a meeting didn't pass that there wasn't at least one person always sitting in the front row of the chambers armed and would get up to speak during a public comment session. It seems like gun rights is one of a handful of issues. I would say abortion is another one that have become so deeply personal to many voters that it's hard to work on anything else if you don't agree on that position. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Maybe Christian has always been that way and the issues were different in the past, but it does seem like there are these defining kind of issues like abortion and gun rights that become a litmus test and either you're for it or you're against, but you can't talk to each other. You can't look for the, the middle ground. I remember <laughs> trying to have a dialogue when I was chair of the Planned Parenthood board. We tried to open a conversation with the local right to life in Grand Rapids, you know, just to see if we could find some common ground or the things we can agree on, uh, you know, that unwanted pregnancy is a bad thing. We should be able to both agree on that. And yet we could never even start the conversation because the other side was so dug in and so unwilling to even look for common ground. Where do you see the opportunity to move the needle on issues that have become so much more about identity than any evidence or facts that you could present? Well, climate change is another one of those issues that seems to have taken on the cloak of partisan politics. I think I've gone through some evolution on this question of climate change from at the beginning wanting to convert every climate denier to a stage where I said, it's not worth the effort. I believe I'm right. I don't believe I'm gonna change their mind. I'm simply gonna go ahead and do the things that I think are necessary. And that didn't feel quite right either, Christian. And so I've come back maybe in, in the maturity of age to believing that the way we use language, the vocabulary we choose around some of these questions, the way we approach people, either civilly or not, makes a difference. And we should always continue, whether it's abortion or gun rights or, or racism or, or climate change, we should always continue to try to find that common ground between us. I think both my politics and my faith argue for that. Yeah. As you're going through that process, though, there's a I don't want to say a tendency, but sometimes it feels like you have to run parallel paths. You have to be open to extending yourself, thinking about your language and the way that you're reaching out to people, but you also can't wait for them. Social change, environmental policies, they don't happen with permission from everyone. They happen because you build power. As you think about these sides that are so entrenched and you look at both on the local level as well as on a national level, the current political landscape, what do you think needs to happen to build enough power? to start to implement more ambitious goals around immigration, climate change, race relations. I'd use the example of a dear friend who was affluent and used his wealth beneficially in the community around issues of race relations. And Bob Woodrick and I used to sit and talk about, you know, how do we get from this place where we are, an unhealthy place, to a place of health and wholeness, of equity and equality in our community. And Bob 
would argue that it's about changing hearts and minds. And you change one heart and one mind at a time, and eventually all the hearts and minds will be, be changed. I didn't disagree with that, but I would argue that it's about public policy. And you change public policy to do the right thing. And then as people are doing the right thing and learning that it's better, it's healthier as a community to live in equity across racial boundaries, then hearts and minds change. I'm not prepared to wait for all the hearts and minds to change. I'm too old for that now. I want to see good, sound, enforceable public policy that will move us in the right direction toward racial equity. And I can fully believe that as that happens, as people begin to live together and work together and share equally because that's what the law says they have to do, that eventually they will see that the other isn't so scary, isn't trying to take away my job, isn't trying to take away my stature, my position, but, you know, is my neighbor and becomes my friend. And then my heart changes, then my mind changes. In the push to implement some of these policies, you have to reach a certain threshold of political power. And I think right now, as I look at some of the political policies I would love to see in place, you see things such as gerrymandering, which currently in Michigan puts the state legislature more in Republican control relative to how the state votes. But you see gerrymandering, you see voter suppression. How do you build enough momentum to get to the place where you can reform some of those things and then start to build a greater coalition. And in that push, where do you spend your political capital? Yeah, great set of questions, Christian. My reading of late has included Isabella Wilkerson's important book, Cast, Eddie Gloud's book, Begin Again, on James Baldwin and his relevance to our times and Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in each case, I think it's fair to say that those three authors and Baldwin would say that it is about policy and you do need to invest in policy, but you've got to come to it, Kendi says, not simply as a white guy with good racial sensitivities. You've got to set aside all the old myths and stereotypes that have become so much a part of our systemic understanding of society that that we don't even recognize them anymore. So you got to hold them up, you got to see them, you got to realize, you got to recognize, and then you can begin to change. And then it's about developing public policy. I can't think of anything other than perhaps climate change that is any more important today for the future of our world and certainly our nation than working on becoming an anti-racist society, breaking down the castes that are so deeply embedded in the way we live, especially as white people in America today, that we don't even see them anymore. So it's about public policy. It's about recognition. It's about, I think, the whole redemption process where you say, you know, I've been wrong. I've held this understanding and it's wrong and it's not helpful and it's not moving us in the right direction. And so I, as a white man, need to be the one to change. And when I change, I start to see the world in a different way. And I start to see my relationships with others in a different way. And that's how fundamental change takes place. I would tack on to sexism and inequality. Throw immigration in there too, because it fits into that same bucket of inequalities. In each case, it starts 
with, at its very root, fear. I fear as a white man that a woman is going to take my job away from me. I fear as a white man that an immigrant from Mexico is going to be better educated than I am and elected to office and will be setting the laws that run our country. I fear that my black neighbor is going to harm me somehow. And so when it's fear-based, you got to start by addressing that fundamental issue of human nature and the fear of the other. Let's talk about public solutions versus private solutions. I see a place for both. I think like many, I'm becoming more conscious of the way that highly celebrated philanthropists continue to get more and more credit, attention, and be looked to as the individuals that have the power to change and address significant issues in our society. I feel like I have admiration and understanding and also feel like those resources from a democratic standpoint and from a governing standpoint, being controlled by individuals doesn't necessarily sit right with me. And this kind of balance of what's the role of philanthropy and then what's the role of government and whether those are balanced right now or not. I can still feel the blood rushing to my face as I think about Governor Engler's efforts here in Michigan to cut back general assistance funds to single individuals in poverty based on the assumption that the private sector could take care of those folks. It was not the government's responsibility. So no, I think government has a key role to play and it has a role to play both in vis-a-vis for-profit business to provide the first dollars in, in some cases, for what may be seen by business as risky ventures. I think it's got a future. I can't afford to invest in it. But government comes along and says, all right, we'll seed the field here. We'll make the initial investments, whether that's in tax incentives or in actual investment in real estate or in research and development. Government has a role at the beginning to drive economic development. Similarly, Government has a role to see to the welfare of all of its people and ought to come to it with a recognition that not everyone is equally able to compete in the private marketplace for adequate sustenance to support themselves and the family, partly because of past injustices, partly because of present circumstances. It has a role to support people who are struggling today in our communities. And you can't leave that purely to the philanthropic sector. So delighted as I am to see philanthropy step up, dependent as I've been myself over the years on philanthropists who've been willing to support things that I believe in, I still feel there's always going to be a key role for government in that regard. Yeah. Is there a way to reduce the impact of wealth on our current government? The wealth in politics is obscene, and yes, there is a way to address it. So I'm delighted that Warnock and Ossoff were elected to the Senate in Georgia. But the money that it took that came from certainly a variety of sources, including some that may have strings attached to it, was actually obscene. We've never seen that kind of money before. And it seems like every election, national, even state and local, I was talking to a friend in Grand Rapids who's contemplating a run for city commission in, in 2022. 
I asked him what he thought that would cost to run for a city commission seat. And he said, probably 50 to $75,000. I ran for city commission in the 1990s, served two terms in the commission before I ran for mayor. And I was breaking new ground with $30,000 in expenditures. It just seems to be ratcheted up. And so the parties that come to the table that have got money also have certain expectations of the folks they support. Oftentimes, not always, but often. There is a way around that, and it's not one that anybody seems inclined to take seriously right now. And I don't know what it will take to get legislators who are dependent on those funds to take it seriously, but it's public funding of elections. There's a limit, and it's funded by the government, not by the pharmaceutical industry, not by the police and firefighters unions. It's funded by folks like you and me. It's public funding that goes into that. I think that's ultimately the only solution that allows us to have legislators who are bound only by their commitment to their constituents and their own consciences. It seems like that alongside of ranked choice voting are potentially policies that could make a very big difference in who is able to be elected and the ties that they have back to the people that they're representing. I just wonder sometimes what it takes to break through. I mean, I use the term political capital. And to me, it, the question is, if we're going to hang our hat on a couple issues, what are the ones that unlock the most change? Potentially, it's campaign finance reform, because without that, it's so difficult to address any of the other issues that we're wanting to talk about. You're right, Christian. I think it's that and it's gerrymandering. You know, Michigan took an important step in the right direction, I think, in creating a commission to set the boundaries for our electoral districts, those would be two key reforms, I think, that could, could help move us in that direction. What gives you hope right now? Every day when I get up, I have to renew that hope because it is a hope that is born of a vision that's very different from what I see around me. I love the quote, and I'll get it at least close to accurate, from Václav Havel, who was a dissident who was elected president of the Czech Republic. Havel, in a series of interviews, said hope in a very deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather is an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. It's not the conviction that things will turn out well, but it's the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. That's hope. I see a vision for our world where climate is stabilized, where we are generations down the road, we're not fearful that we're going to destroy the planet because of the actions that our grandparents and great-grandparents. I see a vision of the world in which black and white and brown live in harmony and share the resources of a good world equally. Those are things for me that are hopeful. It's not optimism. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not particularly optimistic right now, Christian, but it's beyond optimism. It goes to a belief that what I'm doing today is right. It's essential, no matter, as Havel said, how it turns out. Yeah. 
for me to go through life in the most meaningful way that I can, it's not to chase money, but it's to do work that's important. In many ways, it's anchoring yourself in that hope. I don't want to say it's a selfish thing, but I think hope is a sustaining thing. Yes, absolutely. It's an iterative thing, but it can have moments when it breaks out and accomplishes grand things. <laughs> and that's what gives me hope. I'd like to see a few more of those grand things before I go. <laughs> but they're coming. They're coming. They're absolutely coming. In your opinion, where are the opportunities to build hope versus fear? I, I don't necessarily think that it's a complete dichotomy, but in many ways, it seems like there's a leadership driven by fear and there's a leadership driven by spreading hope. How do you swing the pendulum toward hope on a larger level? Well, that is the huge question of our time, and it doesn't have simple or easy answers, but it starts with each one of us believing that we can do more, we can do better, and that we can make the space around us better for the people that enter that space, that we can uh, exude the kind of energy and enthusiasm and love that are captivating and are transforming for other people. So maybe it ultimately is iterative and it's one by one by one by one. But there are grand moments like for me, that moment in Paris when 600 mayors stood up and said, by God, we're going to do something about this. This issue of climate change doesn't have to be the reality of the future. And we know that we're part of a larger movement that sustains us and that motivates us and it moves us toward a better place. Yeah. I've spent so much time in the venture capital and private equity world lately where everything is about scale and about can you get to a massive scale quickly. And it feels to me like the depth of change that really drives hope is not something that scales across large tech platforms or huge movements quickly, but is built on that one-to-one -one connection. How do you feel about how you balance the personal nature of the relationships that drive hope and the visionary leadership that can spur a much larger movement? Momentum is the word that comes to mind. I think the sum total of all of those acts of hope, individual acts of hope, have a multiplying impact and they make for the potential for one of those grand moments where hope just breaks out and transforms everything around it. And so part of it is being hopeful yourself and doing the acts of hope and the work of love, because I think those two words are inseparable, but believing that in that there is momentum and so that as I interact with two people, each of them is going to be interacting with two people, and that momentum grows out of that. If you look at Me Too or you look at Black Lives Matter, I think these are moments where you see that washing over of hope as a key piece of all of the energy coming out. But the question for me has been, can you capture that and turn it into the policy that solidifies that hope into something that's much more stable? Well, absolutely. And Black Lives Matter is a great illustration. And Eddie Gloud Jr. in the book that I referenced previously, Begin Again, talks about the way that movements in time, the civil rights movement, uh, well, it's, he goes back to the post-Civil War and the Reconstruction movement 
that brought in powerful civil rights for freed slaves in America. And then that moment was met with pushback, what was called the redemption period. But then again, in my lifetime, the civil rights movement emerged. And who would have thought that we could have made the policy progress that we made under a, you know, a president from a southern state, from the state of Texas. And yet it happened. And now there's a pushback. And that pushback is met with a new movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. And the Black Lives Matter movement comes at this important point in time with a new president and a new Congress, when maybe the sheer momentum of hope takes over and good public policy is implemented. George, I just want to thank you for your time, for sharing all of these life experiences. I've looked up to your leadership and certainly hope to, in some way, shape, or form, follow in those footsteps. Well, thank you. You are, and you'll run way ahead of me, I know. So thank you. It's been a delight to reconnect with you, Christian. And-